All right, okay, good to see you. We're talking about the Gospel of Mark today. We're in Mark the 10th chapter. We're in double digits now. That's pretty exciting. And so we are following uh, Jesus uh, as he is now uh, very rapidly making his way toward Jerusalem and the climactic things that really chapter 11 next week is when we'll get going with all of that. So are you ready to talk about chapter 10, kind of the penultimate chapter before Jerusalem. Absolutely. All right. Mark chapter 10, Jesus has been in Galilee, and now he's leaving that area, and he's headed toward the region of Judea. Chapter 10, verse 1, he left there, went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. Jesus is, if you're plotting this on a map, he's headed south toward Jerusalem. And uh, I love the fact that, that the text just says, uh, as was his custom, uh, he taught people. People come around him and like, just the natural reaction is, all right, here's an opportunity to teach. Like just always seizing those opportunities. Absolutely. Um, uh, verse 2, and here's another thing that seems to also have been a custom <laughs> for the Pharisees. The Pharisees came up in order to test him. Ah. Yeah, how not, not to learn from him. Yeah. To, um, to test him. This is very much their MO. They've come to test. And they ask this question, verse 2. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, let me just let's just stop right there. I, I, I think just the subject matter of you know wanting to discuss about marriage and divorce and remarriage, that number one, that was clearly a hot button issue then. Yes. And continues to be now, even two thousand years later. But this could have the potential to be a very you know sincere question and a very sincere discussion. Divorce was constantly a burning question amongst the rabbis at that time. Um, but the truth is, uh, Jesus had already taught on this subject, and these guys probably were well acquainted with what Jesus had taught on this subject. You remember back in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verse 31 and 32, Jesus had said some very pointed things uh, about uh, marriage and divorce and those sorts of things. And so that's why it should come as no surprise then that for these Pharisees, they come up and they really kind of spoil what, what could have been a good opportunity to talk about these things. Instead, they've come to test Jesus. Maybe even this is another attempt to try to you know, uh, catch him in his words or entangle him and you know, get, get him into some kind of a contradiction uh, of some sort. In order to test somebody, you have to have more knowledge than them. <laughs> yeah. You know? <laughs> And they probably, you know what, there probably were, at least certainly in the beginning, they probably thought that they did have more knowledge than him. Again, the Pharisees, if you're, if you're, if you're keeping a list of pros and cons of these guys, they were very studious. Yeah. No, these guys did know the Scriptures. And we're going to see that, that they do know some Scripture here in the, the, the rebuttal in just a second, but they don't know more than the guy who was the actual author uh, of those things. It's just rather, it's it's kind of cringy yeah. in post, like reading it backwards, seeing the Pharisees' position here, the all oh, we're going to come test and proctor God. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's what we're here to do. Yeah. It's just like, guys. I, I wish I, they could see it. wish they could have seen it. I think it's worthwhile looking at the, how they frame the question as well. Yeah. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Notice that they did not ask, hey, Jesus, what's God say about marriage? That would be a good question. Yeah. And actually, probably there's not enough people even today that ask that question. Hey, what's God for? What's God in favor of? What, what is God, 
you know, uh, smile upon and, and is pleased with? What's God mm-hmm. say about marriage in His Word? Instead, they come asking kind of the, 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 you know, the inverse of where's that. Where's the line? Yeah, where's the line? You know, what can we get away with? Mm-hmm. You know, can a person get away with divorce? And that's, this is a great lesson, a great place to point out. That is a backwards way to approach Scripture uh, and to yes. approach the Word of God, where we just kind of come in asking, like you said, you know, where's, where's the line so I can creep up as close to it as possible? How much can I possibly get away with? Yeah. Th- that's really, it seems to be, the tenor of this question. As yeah, Having young Christian friends, too, and I'm not going to out anybody, but like having conversations with people about, like, where's the line with modesty? Yeah. Like, where's the line? Why are you asking that? Yeah. You know, or like sexual immorality. It's like, where's the line? Where's the Dude, no. <laughs> it's not. Don't. Once you get to the line, you're already over the line at that yeah. point. You're not. You don't have graceful little feet that can, you know, just dance around the line. You will fall over it like, like it's, nine out of ten times. It's, 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 it's ridiculous to ask that. It's yeah. like a person who says, hey, how close can we build our house to the city dump? No. <laughs> how, how far away can we build our house from the city dump? Yeah, that's let's, a let's terrible idea. Far away as we can. I don't want to buddy up to it. Um, that's right. But that seems to be the tone of, of their question here. And so Jesus responds, verse 3, he answered them, Well, what did Moses command you? Okay, what, what, what did, all right, you guys know the Bible. Well, what did Moses in the law, the old law, what, what was the command that Moses gave? And Jesus does that. He actually spins it around and makes it positive and says, What, what was the positive command? Yes. Um, and interestingly, that is not how they answer. Mm-hmm. Verse 4. They said, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. So Jesus says, All right, what did Moses positively command about marriage? And what they reply with is they do reply with something from Scripture. This is taken from Deuteronomy 24, this stuff here about the, uh, the certificate of divorcement. And there's, there's two things wrong with them giving this answer to Jesus' question. When Jesus asked, what did Moses command you? First of all, Moses did not command anyone to get a divorce. Yeah. (laughs) Never did Moses command that. Uh, Secondly, Deuteronomy 24 did not command or even set out even any kind of legitimate grounds for divorce. That that passage of Deuteronomy 24 doesn't even talk about like an actual lawful reason for a divorce. Uh, All Deuteronomy 24 does, if you go back and read it, is it forbids a husband from remarrying his wife after he's divorced her and she's already remarried. Mm -hmm. That's what Deuteronomy 24 uh, forbids. Um, And notice why Jesus says that Moses even gave that uh, piece of legislation. Verse 5, Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you that commandment. That's the reason Moses had to do that. That provision in the law, it was only given to try and curtail some of just the evil and the sinfulness that apparently was going on in Israel at that time. It seems like husbands were probably treating their wives pretty harshly at that time. And this was just God's way of trying to attempt in some way to try to curb uh, some of that and try to rein them in uh, a little bit. This is it really was God being um, merciful. Yeah, very merciful to even to even provide this. Yeah. Um, again, but none of that was God's will. Yeah. None of that. None of that was part of God's design uh, and His original intentions for what marriage ought to be. I mean, tell me if I'm off base here, but like God's original will for us was to just 
exist in the garden, totally sinless, just loving life, no problems, none of this ridiculous complicatedness. Yeah. And then, like, we complicated everything, so now he's trying to just curtail us and shepherd us along this path that we keep we keep hacking down leaves and stuff when he already made a totally straight path for us. Yes. And he's just trying to constantly veer us back onto that path. Yes, yes. And um and 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 it just makes things exponentially more complicated and it you know when you tr- step back and try to view all this from God's point of view it's like it, it it's like the parent that's just trying to have to chase a kid around like all over the place and uh, if you just would listen to me, things would be a whole lot easier. Yeah. If you just do what I said from the very beginning, things would just work out a whole lot better. And actually, that's where Jesus wants to take this conversation. When he asked, what did Moses command? Here was the right answer that they should have gave. Verse 6, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. We can just stop right there. Here's a great place to just point out that, that, that our day and time of questioning you know, gender, and the idea of gender fluidity and all of the, the, the nonsense that goes along with that. I'm content to just say what God said from the beginning and what Jesus then reiterates here. God made male and he made female. Yes. Simple as that. Verse 7, Therefore a man, a male, shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, a female. Yes. And the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. That actually was something that Moses recorded as well. You read the book of Genesis. That's exactly what was intended and commanded from the very beginning. Verse 9 now, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So if you want to go back all the way uh, up to the Pharisees' original question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? You know what Jesus' answer is? Jesus' answer is verse 9. Yeah. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. That is... That is the basic answer to that question. Yeah, and the the reality of divorce is that's not a God-given command to divorce ever. Like you yeah. said, that's a result of man's error yes. and lawlessness every time. Yes. I've never heard of anybody be like, man, uh, we divorced for God. Wait, that's what we did. <laughs> yeah. If they did, that would just that'd be mind-boggling. Yeah. You know? Uh, it can't be done. So the divorce is not... Uh, it's not a thing that to answer the question at face value. No, God does not approve of it. He that's right. That's right. And that's what Jesus wants them to understand. Is like you need to understand God's rule. Like before you start talking about the exception, and there is an exception. We'll, we'll, we'll and we'll get to that in a second. That's right. Um, we need to understand the rule. And when we're going to ask questions like this, we need to answer with the rule. We're not going to immediately just jump to the exception. No, let's talk about what the rule is. The rule is a man and a woman is to get married. And they're to be married for life. And I like to think the Pharisees, they know this. They know how to study the scriptures, but, but. they're being convenient because they want to they get Jesus here. Yeah, and Jesus yeah. isn't going to play their, their, their little games here. Um, Jesus just responds by saying, hey, you guys remember how to actually study the Bible? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, if, if, if they had wanted to be intellectually honest when they asked this question, uh, then actually they would have just been able to just answer it on their own. They would have just said, you know what, Jesus? It's not lawful to divorce. And Jesus would have said, amen to that. High five, guys. Yeah, <laughs> good job. Um, now, the discussion doesn't end there because in verse 10, the disciples uh, want to continue asking. Verse 10, in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And I just want to say, nice. 
Yeah. And we've seen that happen a couple of different times already uh, through Mark's gospel where Jesus does some teaching, kind of leaves some head scratching, and the people who truly want to know are the ones who are going to say, hey, you know, give us a little bit more. Uh, give us, we want a little bit more. So verse 11, Jesus said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is just some fundamental stuff that folks need to understand about, we need to understand, uh, about, about God's law pertaining to marriage and then um, what sometimes can happen uh, in marriage. What Jesus shows here in these verses is that that first union, we've got this man, we've got this woman, that that first union together, it is still binding even after they decide to just divorce each other for, you know, some Whatever ridiculous cause. reason. Yeah, like she burnt the toast or, you know, he he won't pick up his dirty socks. Um, that first union is still binding um, because when that man goes and marries another person or if she goes and ends up marrying another person, Jesus says that that's tantamount to adultery. Right. Uh, because your obligation was still to that first party. God looks at your, you know, what, whatever this divorce is that you've gotten uh, through the courts. Um, it really doesn't. It doesn't doesn't mean anything yeah. to the Lord. Of course, barring the exception, that's in Matthew nineteen. Mm-hmm. But that's that's not in this discussion right now. That's not. Yeah. It's not. And 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 I, I actually think Mark probably intentionally leaves it out. Because he's just wanting to impress what Jesus, you know, says here. Maybe Jesus even left out uh, talking about the exception in this particular conversation because he'd already talked before about the exception to other people. Yeah. And like, you guys still ain't getting it. I need to, I need to reinforce and hammer home what the rule is. Yeah. And the rule is you get married and you stay married till death do we part. Um, that's God's rule for marriage. Yeah, marriage is not just super dating. <laughs> yeah. That is basically how the world is treating it now, but yes. that is not what it is. And since we haven't just flat out said it, um, Matthew 19, sexual immorality, sexual unfaithfulness in a marriage, that is the one exception uh, that God allows for divorce. But again, the number one, that doesn't mean that God commands you to divorce your spouse, even if that happens. Yeah. And number two, I don't think God even wants that to happen. No, He doesn't. In fact, you read Malachi, God hates divorce. So even when it happens... And a person is, you know, kind of they're they're, they're going to follow with the exception that God has allowed. And it's not that God's happy. I don't think that person has sinned, but it still makes God sad. Yeah, because uh, it ruins what He had designed as being beautiful and and good from the very beginning. But I think He does understand that there is a there's a deep trust. That yeah, is just it gets destroyed at that point. So, yeah, yeah. Um, and there are couples that are able to. To, to, to work through that and God bless folks that are able to continue to work through that kind of stuff and make a marriage work um, for the benefit of themselves, for the benefit of their children, uh, and just for the benefit of society as a whole. The world is better off when people get married and stay married. I agree with that, yes. That's God's rule. Verse 13 now. Drop the mic. That's God's rule. <laughs> yeah. Uh, kind of a hard shift now. Uh, yeah. And and that I don't know I I kind of wonder if that if if sometimes that was the way it worked on a daily basis with Jesus where it's just like, you know, ninety degree turn from this subject with these people to now I'm going over here and now I'm talking to these people about something completely different. Um, I imagine it was probably like I that mean, many I days. Feel, I feel like being a preacher is almost like that. 
It can be. I mean, it's it's like a mini version. Like, we're not as popular as Jesus. Yeah. But still, yet, it's like somebody's blown up my Facebook just earlier about, what do I do with my anxiety? And, like, you know, earlier this morning thinking about, you know, th- these teachings here in Mark 10. So it is, you are confronting different angles, like, every day. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, Jesus, I mean, props to him because it, I think it's stressful. It, it can be. But yeah. he, but he is dealing with it on a whole nother scale. Yeah. Here. And he is ready always to give an answer. So, verse 13, what's going on? They were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them for that. Now, it was common for Jewish mothers to bring their child to like a a prominent rabbi in order to receive like a a special blessing uh, by the rabbi. Now, whether some of that was just kind of, you know... uh, Ritual, yeah, and I'm not saying that there was something special that happened, and it, it again it just may have been a tradition thing. Uh, but they especially would do that sometimes on like a child's first birthday. Uh, I don't know, I can't, I can't explain to you all the symbolism of that, but but that was a common thing. And so for the idea here of of some some maybe some mothers bringing their little children to Jesus, you know, they saw him as being a great rabbi, yeah. a great teacher, the greatest. Um, and so, yeah, if you are going to bring your kid to a rabbi to receive a blessing, uh, if ever there was one to do that with, it would be Jesus. Um, It'd be pretty cool to be able to say later on, yeah, Jesus blessed my kid. Yeah, or you're the kid, and you're yeah. like, you, I, Jesus blessed me. I remember it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> it'd be a good story to tell. Um, but the disciples rebuke them for doing that. Now, yeah, you, you, we're not giving a lot of details here, but I'm going to go out on a limb and think, and say that I don't think the disciples were just being like mean uh, or ugly about this. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of just picture them in some ways, kind of almost acting the way like you know, like maybe bouncers or security detail yeah. does for like a, a, a an important person. It's just because they know Jesus. He's, he's on a mission, and he's swamped. He's swamped. He's got places to go. He's got stuff to do. Also, the context of children. They're like looking at these kids in, in the historical context as these are just this is a waste of our time. They're they're nothing. Yes, they're they're just stand. They're, they're, they need to sit down and shut up and just be kids. And we're on a we're on a life and death mission to establish this big old empire right now. And yep. you know, and the kids coming up to Jesus, they're just like get, get out of here. Yeah, that's, go on. that wasn't how Jesus exactly. Them. And and this is a perfect follow up to to what had happened just in the previous chapter in chapter nine, because apparently the disciples they didn't get it. When Jesus had brought that little child into their midst, yeah. did that teaching about um, you know humbling your humbling oneself and having just the lowly status of a child, and you know don't cause one of these little ones to sin, um, and so that's why verse fourteen then says, when Jesus saw that they were rebuking them, he was indignant. Yeah, and again, I don't know how much time passed between chapter nine and chapter ten, but. You know that had to be on his mind. Like, guys, I just <laughs> talked to you about this the other day. Um, and he but said, Jesus, we got to go establish this big earthly empire right now. <laughs> yeah, just <laughs> calm down. <laughs> and so he says to them, verse 14, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Um, let's just say about that, first of all, um, I, th- I think the main point here is that the spirit that children exhibit, the humility, lowliness, the trust, the confidence, yeah. the yielding to authority, those kinds of things, those qualities of children, that's what the kingdom of God is going to be composed of. There's also another sense, and I think in which we can say 
uh, from this verse and lots of other passages, Jesus is also affirming here that like little children are safe spiritually. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't mean that they are saved because if they've not sinned, they don't have anything to be saved yeah. from. But they are spiritually safe. Yeah, they belong to the kingdom in the sense that they're they're operating under the authority of God. Yes, That's, yes. That they they can't rebel. They don't understand what it would mean to rebel. Right, right. Um, um, verse fifteen. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. And we noted from chapter nine how Jesus, uh, Jesus liked kids, and it seemed like kids liked Jesus. Yeah, I love it. And it's because. He had time for them, even though they were kind of at the bottom of society's totem pole. He took the time for them. And then just like this, I mean, this stuff of, you know, him, the, the touch. Taking them in his arms. Yeah, I mean, we've noted a few other times about just the power of a touch. You know, Jesus touched that leper when yeah. there was no reason for him to touch that leper. But there was just something significant about that touch. It's him touching well, these kids, not not inappropriately, yeah. but holding them in his arms and like affirming a physical gesture of his his love for them. And he he esteems these kids when probably nobody else does. That when the disciples didn't, when they were trying to, like he said, bounce the kids away. Yeah, he said, "No, let them come, let them come to me." And he's holding them. There, the, to me, that's just a supreme gentleness when you can handle something so fragile mm -hmm. like a child. Yeah. And and he, he I mean I guess it's implied that they're like hugging him back. It's not just like an awkward you know right. come here you know so that, that no Uncle Jesus <laughs> don't I don't want a hug <laughs> come give me a hug so you know everybody has that relative that's like give me a hug yeah um, but no but he uh, you can kind of see that there's this little bit of rapport here yep and that 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 shows to me the gentle spirit of Christ that that we later see on the cross when he is faced with all of his enemies and you know he just he's able to I mean, he doesn't utter a word against them like the prophet says, Isaiah, and he, he all he says is, Father, forgive them. That mm -hmm. takes an immense amount of inner peace. And I think that's something that kids can see. Yeah. You know, they can they can see when, oh, that's a bad man. Well, when they can see if he's real, if, if someone's really gentle too. Yeah. And think as well about the disciples, you know, Peter and Andrew and James and John in particular. The, the, these guys are like rugged fishermen. Yeah. We don't even know if they had children. <laughs> um uh, we know Peter was married. Yeah. That's that's about all that we know as far as those guys go. But like you know, they probably were like, eh, it's again, it's kids, and maybe they just didn't have that that natural kind of affection toward children. So if nothing else, this is Jesus kind of helping to prepare them for later on when he ascends back into heaven, and these guys are going to be, you know, the ambassadors for the word. Um, Guys, you you need you're gonna need these qualities. Yes, you know of having this kind of care and compassion for for children. And and the more important lesson that Jesus is trying to convey is that we need to have the the kind of attitude and spirit that children demonstrate um, in order if we're ever gonna even see the kingdom and, and be we, in it. And if we do have that attitude, then that means that we can trust Jesus. Yes, because the children trust Jesus. Yes. So. Uh, verse seventeen. Uh, here's the next. Uh, turn in the road. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now this is the man that we're going to come to learn here at the end of this discussion that this man was rich, uh, sometimes referred to as the rich young ruler. Um, there's some good things just in that one verse, verse 17, about this guy. Notice first of all, he runs up to Jesus. 
Like, I don't know if he heard that he was coming that way or he saw him in the distance, but, like, this guy's like, hey, I got to get I gotta get with that guy. I've yeah. been hearing things about him. I got to talk to him. Not only does he run up, secondly, he kneels before him. Uh, you know, he's this guy's got some humility working in him. Maybe he's got some of the humility working in him that the disciples, you know, needed to work on a little bit. And then, thirdly, he asks, this is a good question. It's kind of the best question we can ask. It's literally one of the best <laughs> questions you could ever ask. What must I do to inherit eternal life? This for me is the that's the, the question that shoots up a giant exclamation point whenever I'm studying with somebody. Yeah. And they finally hit the light bulb moment when they realize this Jesus guy we're reading about is prescribing heaven. Yeah. How do I get that? Yes. So important. That's a crucial. That's the This pivot. is the this is this is what we're all looking for in our, our interactions with our friends and people who are outside of Christ. Um, that's what we need to have our antenna up for. And this question is what we need to be steering people towards as well. Yes, yes. Uh, just picturing all this, though, it's, there's just, this is just such a scene to me. This rich, young aristocrat falling at the feet of this penniless prophet from Nazareth. Carpenter's son. Yes. And, and recognizing that this, this man, he has the words of eternal life. And so he comes with this good question. Um, Jesus then says to him, what, what may be a little puzzling, he says to him, verse 18, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, we could probably wrestle with that and turn that inside out, and you, you may have some thoughts here in just a second. But I really just think by Jesus asking this back to him, Why do you call me good? I, I think this is just a challenge for this young man to... To just think a little bit. Um, like Jesus wants him to think a little bit. But first of all, goodness is a virtue and a quality that comes from who? God. It comes from God. Goodness is not the result of or is not defined by human achievement. He refers to him as good teacher as if, hey, the fact that you you know, teach the way that you do, that's what makes you good. Mm -hmm. No, that's not what makes Jesus or anybody else good. Good, it emanates from the Father. That's where goodness comes from. I, I honestly read this a little bit differently. It's adjacent kind of to your thoughts, but and I do think Jesus is trying to stir up his thoughts, uh, so I don't think we disagree, but I, I think we see Jesus using this kind of language, like, for example, uh, with Pilate, uh, when when he's facing off with Pilate, um, and he, he says, who do you say that I am? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, the, the guy calls him good teacher, and he's like, why are you calling me good? Yeah. Only God is good. And it's almost like him subtly saying, you know I'm God. Yeah. You know. That's that's a good point. That's kind of how I read it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and that, actually, there probably is a lot of, of truth to that. Um, for this guy, if he hasn't already in his mind, to make the connection. Because that's where Jesus is trying to get people, right? Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I am a good teacher. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but... I'm more than that. And and there's a lot of people in our world today that could use a dose of that because there are many people that will acknowledge Jesus was a great moral teacher, mm -hmm. uh, was a great moral man, but will stop short of saying that he was actually God in the flesh yeah. or that he was divinity of any kind. Um, and so, yeah, he, he's, he's pushing that guy to think in, in those terms. Now, he is now going to deal with his question about inheriting eternal life, verse 19. You know the commandments. Jesus apparently recognized something enough about this guy that this guy knows something about the Scriptures. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. 
Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't defraud. And honor your father and mother. And the man said to him, Well, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Hey, I'm, I'm doing good. Yeah, you know, Jesus just reeled off a big chunk of the Ten Commandments there, and I'm, I'm good with all those. It is of interest to me. Did you notice that there was one commandment glaringly that was omitted in those statements that Jesus says? Um, I don't see covetousness on there. Yeah, the command about do not covet. Yeah. And I do find that to be interesting because here in just about two seconds we're going to find out that was apparently part of this guy's problem. Um, all these I've kept from my youth. I'm good to go. Hey, I, I, if, if that's all that it takes to go to heaven, then I got my bags packed. Let's... <laughs> Let's go. Uh, and Jesus, verse 21, looking at him, I love this, that this is interjected here. He loved him. And he said to him, you lack one thing. Um, it would have been easy for it to say, or for Jesus to, you know, Jesus looked at him and, and frustrated. Yeah. Or Jesus looking at him exasperated or maybe even angry with him. Uh, but he loved him. And, and that says that Jesus had a, had a real desire for this man to, you know, to, to go all the way. Yes. With, I mean, he's, here, he's part of the way. Um, he wants to see this young man fulfill his potential as being a true follower and disciple of him. He loved him and he said to him, You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. So what Jesus, again, he's able to see some things about this man and about his life and about his heart without the man even getting into his whole life story here. And one of the things that Jesus perceives is that this man's riches and his wealth and his things um, really seem to provide a, a, a big wall and barrier between him and his, his you know, a real relationship with God. Indeed. Um, and... You know, it's good. Hey, it's good that you you know you don't steal. That you you know all your possessions that you've acquired through the years that you apparently acquired them honestly. Hey, good for you on that. It's good that you don't lie and cheat and you don't commit adultery and you don't murder. And the truth is, I know a lot of people just like that as well. Yeah, don't you? Lots oh yeah, good, me too good, for sure. Pretty good moral people that you know. If you went down the list of Ten Commandments, I mean, good chunk of them, they'd be. Check mark, check mark, check mark down the list, doing pretty good. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not the measure of what makes a person a disciple. Yeah, and the reality of it is, Jesus saying you lack. It that was the most loving thing that he could do here. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. That 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 was the number one most loving thing that he can do, and it's some of the hardest to receive, is when someone tells us you lack. Yeah, especially you know. Uh, as someone who has dealt with like pride issues and things like that, for someone to come along, and it's, and I can be honest, if you're hard-hearted about it, it's one of the most frustrating things when that person comes to you cool as a cucumber. There's, they're, they're not doing a thing wrong, and they just tell you you need to fit, you need to work on this. Tell you what you need to hear instead of what you want to hear. It can break your heart, yeah. and it should. And well, and, verse twenty-two, it says, disheartened yeah. by the saying. He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Um, and so apparently this, this man, whether he realized it or not, he had made an idol of his you know, material wealth and material things. Now and let me ask you this. Standing in the way. 
Do you realize that? Do you think that he realized that? Or do you think that he just didn't want to face it and that's why he left and was sorrowful? Because I can see two different ways to look at this. Not entirely. I, I don't know. The text yeah. doesn't. I mean, all, all we have is what the text tells us. Um, either way, again, they, they both are, are lead to no good outcome. Um, yeah, uh, he, whatever it was, he just he, he was not willing to, to, to pay that price. This is also a good place to point out that you know when Jesus says, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, um, this is a good illustration of, of the fact that there are sometimes Jesus gives commands in Scripture, and it's not meant to be a universal for all time, for everyone command. This was this, this guy. This was this guy. This yes. was his issue. Now, this could be... Jesus' command to you, if your riches and your wealth and your things are serving as a barrier between you and, and, and really serving and following the Lord, yeah. and maybe the, 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 the instruction for you is, yeah, you do need to just sell everything you've got. Yeah. Um, it's, it's like you, know, you compare it to the cutting, um, off your hand. cutting off your hand, plucking out your eye kind of thing. Yeah. Like It's extreme, but if that's what it takes, that's what it takes. I guess it's just uh, the question of what kind of sorrow are you going to have when, you know, Jesus or someone, uh, Jesus through someone, a kind brother or sister, kind of exposes this, you lack X mm-hmm. in your life, is it going to, it's going to be probably sorrowful no matter what, but it's like, is that going to be like this man, like human sorrow that this guy's obviously experiencing where he turns his back and kind of turns away and doesn't, doesn't follow Jesus? Or is it going to be that godly sorrow that drives you to just say, repent? Yeah, to, to repent, to change. Yep, yep. And that's what Jesus was hoping for with this guy. And, and that, you know, Jesus, Jesus is able to see this guy's heart. And maybe that's, again, that's part of why the text says that he loved him. Because it's like, it's almost like Jesus maybe even knows what this guy's going to, what his reaction is going to be before he even says what he says. Yeah. Um, and so there's this profound sadness on Jesus. But that's the other thing here. This guy goes away sorrowful. Jesus was left standing there sorrowful um, for this yeah. fella. Verse 23, uh, the discussion continues along those lines. Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, you know, so imagine this guy's now walking away. Maybe he's still off in the distance as he's walking away and Jesus now turns to the rest of the fellows. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It, it, it needs to be pointed out, Jesus does not say that wealth is bad yeah, that it's that it's wrong, that it's evil to be wealthy. You go start going through your Bible. Uh, Abraham was clearly a wealthy man. Yeah, Job was a wealthy man. I know Christians that are wealthy. There are Christians today that are that are wealthy people. Um, and oh, Jesus is also not saying that wealthy people cannot go to heaven. That's clearly not what he is saying. What he's just pointing out is that riches and stuff they do just. Oftentimes, probably, I'll be curious to know when we get to heaven to find out from the Lord, Lord, how many people on earth, you know, percentage-wise throughout history, the hang-up was their their stuff and their wealth. You know, that they had, they they hit all these boxes and and they were good in all these areas and they had some faith in you, but like their stuff and their love for those things and their unwillingness to... To, to place those things in their right order and priority, how many how many people like that were kept out of heaven because of that? I, I think mean, it'll be a lot. I mean, I've heard I, I've heard conversation I've had with some folks uh, that are you know the hypothetical. Let's say that this person they're taking overtime hours at work and it's causing them to miss services. You know, 
and they'll be like, well, I'm trying to get money right now so that I can relax later and I can I can take off whenever I want and I can come to service as much as I want. Yeah. And I'm like, you don't want to come to services now. Yeah. Why yeah. would you want to come to services later? You're wanting to make money now. Yeah. Is what you're really wanting. And you know, people don't see that, but uh, it's... That, that is that it's it's serve God or serve money. I mean that's that. And the truth is, thing. you can be poor, yeah, and still be that you know have that that money and things is is a barrier between you and the Lord. Well, wealth is a subjective thing. Yes, I mean it could be just the desire for wealth. Our nation is way wealthier than it probably this young. We probably some of our poorest people comparatively are, to this rich young ruler are yeah. just. I mean, Rolling we're kings, it. yeah, yeah. You know, like in the out in the the, the ghettos and the trailer parks, etc. These people are way richer than this rich young ruler. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's going to be relative, you know. Well, it, it, verse twenty four. Here's how the disciples react to that statement. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, "Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God." So Jesus is kind of already saying, number one. The pathway to heaven just by itself is already narrow. Yeah. And then you want to complicate that with, with riches and, and wealth and all these other things that Satan uses to distract us. How much more difficult is it going to be? How am I going to fit all my big money bags in this narrow gate? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> you aren't. You just aren't. He then uses, well, verse 25, then he uses this great illustration that really captivates our imaginations. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Well, living in the internet age, you can Google that idea, camel and eye of a needle, and you'll get lots of interesting pictures and memes that'll <laughs> pop up. Uh, but it's just to show the the, the absurdity uh, of, of this idea. And then verse 26, the disciples were exceedingly astonished. So look at verse 24. They were amazed at his words. Then verse 26, they were exceedingly astonished at the things that he was saying here. And probably a big part of the reason for this is, is because in ancient times, and probably this is true in some people's minds even today, um, being wealthy and having riches, that was seen as an indication of divine favor. Yeah. Like if you were rich, well then, well that must mean God is God loves you so much and he's blessing you so much. But Jesus is kind of turning the tables on all of that kind of thinking as well and saying, look, just because you're rich doesn't mean that God like approves of everything about your life. Yes, those blessings do all come from God, but it doesn't mean that God, you know, oh, well, you're, you know, the more money you've got in your bank account, then the more righteous you must be. That's yeah. not that that little mathematical equation does not compute. Here's looking at you, Kenneth Copeland. <laughs> yeah, uh, he he needs a new jet. Um, <laughs> so hearing all these things, the disciples then ask, then then who can be saved? You know, I mean. Come on, if even these rich folks can't be saved with all their, their money and God blessing them with all that stuff, then I guess not any of us can be saved. Jesus looks at them and he says, listen, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. So Jesus, again, doesn't say that it's impossible for a rich person to go to heaven. They can. And I, I you know, what well, we already know, uh, Abraham's bosom. Abraham's going to be there. Yeah. We know there's going to be rich people in heaven. Um, his point is, is that when when our priorities are right, and when we allow God to govern our decisions, when we're truly a follower and He's leading us uh, in all the decisions that we make, uh, then then even rich people are able to get their priorities straight, and they can have 
you know, a, a wonderful relationship with the Lord. Uh, it's just a matter of giving God control and surrendering to Him. Uh, all, all this stuff, this talk about riches and so forth, it does remind me of a passage in Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9. And, and this is what, for me personally, this is kind of what I wish for myself. The wise man says there in Proverbs 30, verse 8, he says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Uh, the wise man points out that, you know what? For just as much as there's difficulties with being rich, well, there's some difficulties with being poor. And both of those extremes can serve as a hindrance to a person truly following God. Yeah. And so what his desire is, is, Lord, don't let me be poor, but I don't really want to be rich either. Just, yeah. just let me... Just let me have what I need. Amen. That's exactly what I want. I just want to just I just want to be able to live yes. and be pr able to provide for my family in the future. Exactly. And that's all. And and I, again, I don't think it's wrong to, to have ambition to want more or, or for, to like for us to pursue. Buy a drone so you can make cool videos and post them to your Facebook. <laughs> Listen, that that drone wasn't as much as people think it cost. <laughs> anyway, um, what about the second drone? That was it was free. It was still under warranty. Um, <laughs> Yeah, we don't need this to turn into a confessional. Um, moving on, he moving says. on now. Uh, but yeah, I, I, the attitude there of the wise man is is I, I think that's a that's a, a noble um, way to look at life. Lord, just yeah. just give me give me what I stand in need of. That way, I can devote myself and my mind and my attention to serving you. That's what's most important to me. Absolutely. Peter, verse twenty-eight. Peter, in response to all this, he then begins to say to Jesus, "See." We've left everything and followed you, Lord. Good for you, Peter. You know, Peter, so Peter, yeah, <laughs> Peter's mind has clearly been working as he's listening and observing this whole thing. And characteristically, Peter's mouth needs to work as well. And so Look how awesome we are, Jesus. Yeah, That's what he took away from this. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, hey, we, we did what that rich guy up there wasn't willing to do. What about, you know, where's our gold star? Um, <laughs> and, and, and essentially Jesus' response is pretty much a... Good for you, Peter. You know, <laughs> yeah. Pat on the head. Good job, buddy. Um, he's he's not a, he's not afraid to deal out a little bit of compliments. He, he's it, that's right. And actually, what Jesus has to say next, um, I think Peter kind of said this too out of like desperation, like because they were just now saying who can be saved. And he's like, are we going to be saved? Yes. Jesus. Like yes. I think that's kind of what he was saying. Yeah. So Jesus, I think, reads it and he gives this reassurance that, that yes, he is, those know? who are willing to forsake and follow me, that's who's going to be saved. Verse twenty nine. Jesus says to them. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Notice that there are two rewards that are given, yes. promised, for the one who is willing to sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom. First of all, and the, the obvious one that we always think of, is that eternal life later on. Yeah. And everybody, yeah, that's why we follow Jesus, because I want that eternal life later on. But the other thing Jesus promises is that there are blessings also in the present, in the here and the now, the abundant life that Jesus will talk about in another passage. You become a Christian, yeah, it, it may cause you to lose family members, it may cause you to lose friends. You think about for Christians in the first century, they chose to follow Jesus and some of them lost their homes. 
Yeah. You know, they, they got ran out of Jerusalem and had to flee and go to other places. They lost all that stuff, but you know what? Since they were Christians, since they were in the kingdom, all that was took care of. Oh, yeah. They had all kinds of brothers and sisters and family members. They had all kinds. Yeah, I think about Paul, how many times he refers to different people uh, in the New Testament in, in familial language. He talks about Rufus's mother in Romans 16 as being a mother to me. Yeah. Or he talks about Onesimus in that letter to Philemon as. He's my son. Yeah. Uh, Timothy was like a son. And, and, of course, all of the other people that he counted as brothers and his sisters. Uh, you get all of that and much more um, in not just a spiritual sense, but there is also the, the physical blessings that come along with, with being a Christian, the sharing that goes on amongst God's people and how we take care of one another and see to it that... Um, you know, no one's going to be lacking benevolence and all of those sorts. We see that really in action in the first few chapters in the book of Acts. Um, that's the kind of stuff Jesus says is, that's not the reason that we become a Christian. I yeah. want to get all those goodies. But this but it, will it, happen. It's, it's going to happen. It's a perk and a privilege and a blessing from, from being a Christian. I don't know any faithful Christians that are homeless. I don't either. And I don't think I ever will because if I do and I have a home, then they can stay with me. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> so um, the the thing is, I personally can say this is true. Like in my life, like I lost a ton of friends when I decided to start pursuing God because obviously our you know worldviews didn't line up and right. our, our our lifestyles didn't line up, and that was pretty depressing for a while. But I have made so much more quantity and so much more quality, quality. of friends yeah. and relationships that I really, really, I, I could not be thankful enough for. And yeah. that'll, that'll happen for, for, for everyone who yeah. follows God. Yeah. It's an, and, and probably, you know, even when you, when you began pursuing the Lord, it, again, that wasn't even your thought that you're no. going to get this stuff. And so maybe no. even the first time you read this passage from Mark 10, it was like, huh, that's so cool. Like, that, that's been happening to me. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, reading this <laughs> yeah. now too, like even like, I mean, I've read it before, but even reading it now, I'm kind of like reflecting back and looking back and saying, man, you didn't just replace my friends. Like, you gave me way better ones, yeah, <laughs> you know? Yeah, and that's the hundredfold thing. It's really cool. Yeah. Um, it, I, I'll, I'll say this as well. Did you notice in there, in the midst of all that good stuff that Jesus promises, there's also some kind of hard honesty as well when he also says, with persecutions. Yeah. That, all right. You, you forsake it's all like these things. It's like an asterisk. Yeah, it's like this. It's part of the package, is what he's saying. Yeah, um, and that's just the challenge for you to continue to endure and to bear up. Uh, that yeah, there's going to be tough things along the way, but I'm going to take care of you, and uh, God's people uh, take care of 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 their own. Um, in that last statement about many who are first will be last, and the last first, I think that's kind of just a summation of of kind of the final word on the whole discussion about the riches thing, because again. And to human way of thinking, we think of the rich and the powerful as being kind of the preeminent and the the the, the, fir <clears throat> the first. Uh, Jesus says, no, in my kingdom, that's, that's not the way that that works. This actually highlights a theme in this entire chapter, I think. Um, again, we're going to see it again later on toward the end of it. But it's the inverted kingdom yes. of Christ. Yes. That everything is turned upside down, as it says later in the book of Acts. Yep. That this is not what you would expect. And the attitudes of those who are quote unquote leading are much different than the attitudes of the quote unquote leaders of the world. And yep. again, we're going to see that later on. That's right. Verse 32. Um, this is now Jesus. He's going to, for the third time, in fact, for the third consecutive chapter, 
he is going to tell the disciples of what is going to happen to him. As they were on the road, going up to Jerusalem, you may have noticed a minute ago I had said that Jerusalem was south uh, from the direction that they were coming. So why does it say going up to Jerusalem? Well, that's because Jerusalem was higher in elevation. Yes. You know, we're talking 2,500 feet above sea level, the Mediterranean Sea. It's set up on a hill. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. So they're heading to Jerusalem. And it says they were amazed. So this is all the people who maybe see him heading in that direction. They're amazed that he's going to Jerusalem. And then those who follow, the disciples, they are afraid that they're going to Jerusalem. Let's just stop right there for a second. The amazement, I think, from you know just the crowd and whoever else was standing around and saw Jesus going to Jerusalem, the amazement is the fact that he's actually going into the lion's den. Yeah. Why? What? What? What is he doing? Don't. They're going to kill him there. Shadows of Daniel. You know, Mark has Mark has not given all of the details of all the 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 the, the back working that's going on and the plotting. You, you read the other accounts of the gospel and and Matthew and some of those give more details about what the Pharisees were doing and the plotting that was happening. So everybody knows that that's going on. That's the undercurrent at this time. And so to see Jesus walking toward, you know, his opposition. Um, just was shocking to these people. And then for the disciples, they were afraid. And the reason they were afraid is because they realized this is not a safe place for us to go. Yeah. We, what are we doing? This is, this is not... Let's, let's go the other direction. We, we go away from danger, not go to danger. He just told them that they're going to have everything provided for them, quote-unquote, or not quote-unquote, but comma, with persecution. So yeah. he's, he's about to show them the application of that. Yeah, here's the application of that. So taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. And again, this is the third straight chapter, chapter 831, chapter 931. And it's a shame that the chapter verse divisions don't work out well to where we could have this be 1031. Instead, it's 1033. Jesus says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they would deliver him over to the Gentiles. More specifically, that would be the Romans. And they will mock him, and they will spit on him, and they will flog him, and they will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And so whatever fears the disciples had about us going to Jerusalem, um, when Jesus opens his mouth, he does not alleviate those fears. He actually heightens their fears probably <laughs> uh, because he actually gives a little bit more detail this time than he did on the previous two occasions. The previous occasions he had mentioned he's going to be delivered over to these people, he's going to be killed, and he's going to rise on the third day. But he kind of gives these extra details about how they're going to mock him, they're going to spit on him, they're going to flog him. Um, and that's the idea there of the... Um, Forty lashes. Yeah, the, the 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 lashes and the scourging and those things that go along with that. Um, and so, yeah, if they were afraid before he started talking, they would have been probably even more afraid after he got done saying this. He did not say this to calm them down. He said this so they could mentally prepare themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, fellas, get ready. I mean, we're we're here. I mean, we're we're right here on the precipice of of this happening. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> which is what makes this next. Thing so out of left field. Yeah, but before we go on, okay, I do want to point this out. That it's it's a little bit of synchronicity. Now three times he's told them this. Now later, Peter's going to deny him three times. Mm-hmm. 
And then it's also going to be three days until his resurrection, three days of them doubting and being broken, like, oh, our work, all is lost, paradise is lost. Yeah. So it's just crazy to me. And I, th- I have to think it's deliberate from Jesus here to deliver this message thrice. Yeah. So that, they, that there's just a little bit of faith hanging on through each of these, you know, failures and trials. And, yeah. And these three days, these three long days. And... And it's just a general truth. I mean, r- repetition as well is yeah. is it, it's the way that we learn. Um, yeah. And it's not that they, that after this third time that they now get it. Uh, no, they're still not going to get it until after it's all said and done. But it's going to stick with them for later. It I is. Think. It is. That's um, what I'm trying to bear out there. Um, so verse thirty-five. Here's here's this this makes this next um, bit of discussion just so odd for it to be happening at this point in time. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they came up to Jesus and they said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Oh. Okay. Uh, you can just imagine Jesus kind of leans in like, All right. Like turns <laughs> toward them. <laughs> and he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Uh, this is, let's just call it what it is, this is an ignorant and foolish request. This is on a, their part. It's a me first attitude. It is. It is born out of that carnal thinking that we saw in the previous chapter where they're wanting glory. Remember the disciples had been arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the, you know, when the kingdom begins. Um, there's just, it's, it's, there's this childish and just very elementary view of what the kingdom is going to be. Um, and Jesus, to his credit, <laughs> he does not praise their ambition here. <laughs> he does not pat them on the back for their, their eagerness here. He just tells them, fellas, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't have a clue what you're saying. Yeah. Um, you don't have a concept of what it takes to go through what I'm about to go through. And that's what's meant there by the drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized. Those are metaphorical expressions. Uh, It's not about Jesus drinking some certain drink or or another baptism. It's a, if anything, this is almost a baptism um, by fire, and I mean that in the sense that we use that today, in yeah, the sense of like going fire. through a trial. Yeah. Baptism, and I always read this as being the, the, the baptism in suffering, Yes, that he had no relief at all, That's completely right. immersed That's in right. suffering. And they, so verse 39, which makes this just insane for them to say, they said to him, oh, we're, we're able. Uh, we, we can do it. You know, I well, good for you. <laughs> good for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, again, fellas, you, you, you know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Jesus says to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. You know, Jesus is saying, again, those are metaphors for suffering. And he's saying, you're not going to be able to do those things now, but yet there is coming today and later on. You'll get your chance, yeah. You are going to get your chance. And actually, you know, James is going to be the first of these guys to do that. He's going to be the first one who's going to actually be martyred as an apostle. Um, and even though John, best we can tell, was not murdered, he seems to be the one who died in an old age, uh, that doesn't mean that he didn't have any suffering. Oh, yeah. I mean, he had to watch his brother die. Yeah. Um, amongst all the other you know difficulties that came along with uh, being an apostle. 
Verse 40, but to sit at my right hand or at my left, that's not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Uh, Jesus is willing to defer those things to God. This is, again, fellas, this is, that's not what this is about. It's not about getting some kind of a seat of honor and, and privilege and uh, those sorts of things. <clears throat> uh, there is glory, though, that is awaiting those who are you know, faithful and will follow me. Verse 41, when the other ten heard this, they began to be indignant at James and John. Let me tell you why I think they got mad at James and John. Not so much the fact that, I can't believe that those guys would ask that. I think the reason they got mad is because they wanted to ask it. Yeah. Why weren't we quicker to ask it before they did? Yeah. I think that's why they like, were mad. Like when you're hanging out with your buddies and somebody goes, shotgun. Ah! <laughs> yeah. yeah. Man! Yeah. Just wasn't quick enough. Yeah. It makes you think, I wish I would have done that. Yep. Yeah. Jesus called them to him and he said to them, Look at, look at that scream right there. Yeah. <laughs> that's the growl. <laughs> He says to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. So Jesus, really, this is a continuation of the things he had tried to teach them in chapter 9. You know, when he uses the example how, you know, worldly people, I think it's really what he just means when he talks there about the rulers of the Gentiles. He's just talking about ungodly people. They're just known for using or even abusing, you know, the authority that they have, the power that they have. They use that for selfish purposes. They use it for personal gain. But Jesus says, in my kingdom, that's not how greatness is defined. It's not. It doesn't come from flexing your prowess and your power and your authority. Uh, greatness is found when you get down on your knees and you serve. Yes. Um, and Jesus, of course, didn't just talk that talk. Uh, he came to actually walk it. And that's what he says, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the consummate example of what it means to, to serve. And then that expression there at the end of 45 about giving his life as a ransom for many. That's, a, that, that, that's kind of just an extra uh, layer. We talk about um, redeeming and redemption, but here's here's a different idea. Ransom. That is, it's the price that you pay to release someone. Yeah. You know, a kidnapper. They kidnap someone, and this is the ransom price that has to be paid to release them. And for us, it was the ransom. Jesus paid the ransom price for us for us to be freed from from sin, yeah. to be released from the bondage of sin. Uh, and that's just a a, a, a powerful. Uh, concept and metaphor. And again, this is the theme from the chapter of the kingdom being inverted from how humans operate when they're in the flesh. Yes. Of of the the opposite effect. And I think it's cool to note that like for example in Genesis it was pride that severed the 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 bond between God and man. Mm -hmm. And then Jesus says, well when you flip that on your on its head, you get humility like you said, you get face to the dirt. And that's how we go back, so to speak, to and be reconciled with God is yep. humility. If pride was the if pride was the violation, then humility is the reconciliation. Yep, yep. that's amazing. Uh, last section here, chapter ten, verse forty-six. They end up coming to Jericho. Jericho was a prominent city in in uh, in. You know, in in, in Jerusalem and the, the Judea region, um, especially if you're an Old Testament buff, then you know that Jericho signals this great triumph in the conquest of, of carrying out God's plan. And in a sense, uh, this coming to Jericho again 
is kind of going to start the signaling of the great victory that Jesus is going to achieve when he ultimately comes to Jerusalem and gives his life. As he was leaving Jericho, though, with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. little nugget just to throw in here. Uh, do you see how it says Bartimaeus is the son of Timaeus? Yes. Uh, Bar just means son of. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When, when, when uh, Jesus says uh, to Peter on one occasion, Simon Bar-Jonah, what that means is that means son of Jonah. you are the son of Jonah. Oh, so, okay. Yeah, a little, little nugget. Um, so he sees this blind guy on the side of the road. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and to say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. Hey, shut up, buddy. Leave him alone. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Uh, that's a significant title to refer to Jesus as the Son of David because this guy's acknowledging that Jesus was the Messiah. I know, yeah. You know, that because the, the Messiah was promised to be a descendant of David. And this guy clearly has the faith to recognize that's the Christ. That That's that's the guy. And that's maybe why people are yelling at him to shut up. Yeah, maybe. they're like, the Pharisees will kill him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, stop saying that. We're trying to keep that on the down low. Yeah, um, I don't know. I mean, that's just a thought. Yeah, Could possibly. Um, but this guy doesn't care. He, mm -hmm. he's, his faith has moved him to, to cry out here, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and he said, call him. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up. Love that. Yeah. Springs up. He's blind, he's springing up. And he came to Jesus. Just don't trip over anything while you spring up. Yeah, hope somebody was guiding him. And Jesus yeah. said to him, What do you want for me to do? What do you want me to do for you? It's interesting, that's actually the second time Jesus has asked that question in this chapter. How can I help you? Yeah, James and John had said, Hey, we want you to do something for us. What do you want me to do for you? He's a servant, man. He is. Even when James and John had the worst request. <laughs> yeah. I worked in customer service for a while, and that's how you got to be, you know, if you're going to be a real servant. You know, yeah. you, you got you to, gotta, no matter what, I, I need you to send me a million dollars. Well, let's try and figure out how we can yeah. see if that's possible. <laughs> what can I do for you, buddy? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and really, that's a, I think that's a poignant question here with this guy. Yeah. Um, because it, it, it kind of is going to cause this guy to process... You know what, what? What is my greatest need right now from the Lord? What, what he's he's off. He's essentially by by saying this, he's kind of putting himself out there that he's ready to do something for me. What what is my greatest need right now? Um, and the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately, John's favorite word, Mark's. John Mark's favorite word. <laughs> immediately, he recovered his sight. And he followed him on the way. And really that question uh, that Jesus asked him, that makes a good kind of closing, parting thought for us too. You know, imagine Jesus just asking that question to us. What do you want me to do for you? I don't even know how I would respond with that. <laughs> yeah. It wouldn't be the, you know, well, I want a million dollars. No. Clearly not. We talked about that Proverbs passage. Yeah. It's going to actually take some thinking. I cannot answer that in this chapter, Chad. It's a pretty profound question. Uh, and yeah. it's, like I said, it's worth us closing on and leaving that for everybody else to, to think about as well. Uh, because we that now brings us to uh, the place where we're going to be, and that is chapter 11. Jesus is now going to arrive at Jerusalem and um, uh, really these, these last five, 
well, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, the last six chapters um, are going to encompass uh, really a relatively short span of time uh, here during these last final days. Ladies and gentlemen and brethren, we are at the rising action. We are here. That is true. Yeah. Any other uh, parting thoughts or words before we close? I just got love for everybody. That's all. All right. So does Jesus. What do you want Jesus to do for you? Think about that. We'll talk about chapter 11 next time.